السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ نحمد و نسلی علی رسوله الكریم اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشیطان الرجیم بسم الله الرحمن الرحیم رب اشرح لي صدری و یسر لي امری واحلل عقدتا من لسانی یفقهوا قولی ربنا زدنا علما کتاب الوضوء باب البزاق والمخاطی ونحوه في الثوب البزاق بزاق is the spit the saliva And mukhat is the mucus, the phlegm, and in particular that which comes out from the nose. So these, wanahwihi, and it's like meaning such bodily excretions, fithawb in the clothes. Meaning if such bodily excretions, if they fall on one's clothes, do the clothes become impure? No, they don't become impure. There are different kind of excretions that come out from a person's body. And spit, the saliva, and what comes out of the nose, what comes out of the mouth, that is not unclean. So if it falls on one's clothes, the clothes do not become unclean. If it is on the body, then yes, for other reasons, you should definitely clean up. But if a person is not able to, then he should not feel that his body is unclean, that it is not allowed for him to pray in that state. Likewise, if it's on the sheets, you know, sometimes it happens that children, they drool or even older people do so. So again, The bed, the sheets, the linen, they do not become unclean. For other hygienic reasons, you should definitely clean, but it's not necessary. Likewise, if such excretions fall in the water, does that water become unclean? Meaning, najis. It doesn't become najis. It is still suitable for wudu. It is still tahir. And what's the evidence for that? The evidence for that is the event that happened at Sulh Hudaybiyah. قَالَ عُرْوَةُ And Imam Bukhari doesn't mention the entire hadith, he just mentions a part of it as a statement, because the hadith itself is long and that will be mentioned later on. قَالَ عُرْوَةُ عَنِ الْمِسْوَرِ وَمَرْوَانَ That Urwa he said on the authority of Miswar and Marwan, they said, خَرَجَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ The Prophet ﷺ went out زَمَنَ at the time of Hudaybiyata, at the time of Hudaybiyah. Meaning when that treaty took place, the Prophet ﷺ, he had gone out of Medina towards Makkah in order to perform Umrah. فَذَكَرَ hadith, And then he mentioned the entire hadith, meaning what happened in the entire event of Hudaybiyah, especially when the Muslims were camped at Hudaybiyah. And one of the things that he mentioned was that as the Muslims were there, all of them in Ihram, the Mushrikeen were coming and going, trying to figure out what the real motives of the Muslims were. At that time, what happened that وَمَا تَنَخَّمَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ نُخَامَةً The Prophet ﷺ, he did not clear his throat, meaning he did not spit out phlegm. تَنَخَّمَ is to clear the throat, and نُخَامَةً is the phlegm, the mucus. And نُخَامَةً, it is said that it is what comes out of one's eye, as well as the throat. Alright, so it is... What comes out of the mouth, the eye, and the throat. So if you think about it, mucus, phlegm, it comes out of all of these three places, right? So, وَمَا تَنَخَّمَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ نُخَامَةً Meaning each time he cleared his throat, he spat out what happened. إِلَّا except وَقَعَتْ It fell, meaning that spit that he spat out, that phlegm, that mucus, It fell fi kafi rajulim minhum in the hand of a man from among them. Meaning the Sahaba, they would go to catch it. They wouldn't let it fall on the ground. They would leap forward in order to catch it in their hands. 
and fadala kabiha, and then he would rub with it wajhu, his face, wajildahu, and his skin. Now, we might feel that this was a little extreme, but we see that this was not something that was a norm amongst the companions. This is something that was not a norm. It happened only sometimes. Now, if you look at the context in which this incident occurred, at Hudaybiyah, what happened? The Prophet ﷺ was prevented from entering Makkah right, to perform Umrah. Why? Out of pure bias on the part of the mushrikeen. There was no reason for them to stop the Muslims. It was clear they had come in ihram. They didn't have their weapons. They had their animals with them to slaughter them. And they had come for the purpose of Umrah. But the mushrikeen, were they letting them enter? No, they would not allow them to enter. And instead, they were coming in small groups, time after time, in order to start some kind of a fight with the Muslims. But every time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Muslims, and especially they were in ihram, so they would not involve in any such activity. But we see that their envoys, the mushrikeen, they were coming repeatedly, one after the other, to have discussions with the Prophet ﷺ in order to find out what the real motives were of the Muslims, meaning why exactly they had come. And they also wanted to see the strength of the Muslims, that how many are they now, because they were seeing them after a long time. So in order to show the strength of the Muslims to the mushrikeen, we see that the Prophet ﷺ commanded the Muslims to do many things which he would not tell them to do otherwise. Likewise, he let them do many things which he would not let them do otherwise. For example, one of the things that the Prophet ﷺ did not allow for the Muslims was that if somebody walks in, they should stand up. Or that if the Prophet ﷺ walks in, people should stand up. Or that if the Prophet ﷺ is standing, other people should also stand. No, this is something that he did not allow because this was something that the non-Arabs used to do for their kings, that out of respect, they would stand with their kings. Meaning if the king is standing, they would also stand. But we see at this occasion, Mughira bin Shorba, radiallahu anhu, he was standing by the Prophet ﷺ, not because he was doing something or he was a part of the conversation or anything that was taking place between the Prophet ﷺ and the mushrik envoy, but just out of respect for the Prophet ﷺ, he was standing right by him. Standing right by him, like a bodyguard. And it is said that he was in full armor, as if to show to the mushrikeen that you dare touch the Prophet ﷺ, and we are here to protect him. And which is why the mushrik envoy, when he reached out with his hand in order to touch the, the beard of the Prophet ﷺ, Mughira bin Shorba, he told him very severely that don't you dare touch the Prophet ﷺ. So this is something that the Prophet ﷺ allowed at this occasion. But is this something that he allowed at other times? No, he did not. So this was a unique incident in which many exceptions were made. And this is why we see that when the companions, they leaped out in order to catch the phlegm of the Prophet ﷺ, he did not stop them. Now, the question is, why did they do this? Why did they do this? Yes, they loved the Prophet ﷺ, but they also wanted to show that great love that they had for him. To who? To the mushrikeen. That we adore this individual, we love him, we have extreme respect for him, we value every part of him. So you cannot harm him, and you cannot change our faith at all. You cannot do anything to us. So this was a way to show their love, the strength of their love, 
their support for the Prophet ﷺ, that we are not willing to leave him at any cost whatsoever, no matter what you do. We are right by him. And think about it. If there is someone whom you don't like, okay, if there is a person whom you don't like, and other people are giving him importance, how would you feel? Angry. And every time that individual is given importance by others, you will feel more angry. So the Sahaba, they showed this kind of love and respect for the Prophet ﷺ. Why? To anger the mushrikeen even more. To anger them even more. Because what angers the mushrikeen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likes that. Remember that. Whatever angers the mushrikeen, okay, meaning if a Muslim does something and the enemy, the disbeliever does not like that, and I'm talking about something of the deen. So if the Muslim does something and the enemy does not like that, remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves that act of the believer. Where do we learn that from? From the Quran itself. In Surah At-Tawbah we learn in Ayah 120 that And they do not tread on any ground that enrages the disbelievers. Nor do they inflict upon an enemy any infliction. Except that they are given for it a good deed. A good deed is written for them. So every time they caught the spit of the Prophet ﷺ, the phlegm, and they didn't just catch it in their hands, actually rubbed it on their face. I mean, imagine the rage, the jealousy, the hatred of the mushrikeen. And how frustrated they must have been from inside, how defeated they must have felt. That there is no way we can turn these people against the Prophet ﷺ, or we can convince them to leave the Messenger ﷺ. So they felt defeated. Which is why Urwa, when he returned to the Quraysh, what did he say? He said that, I have been to, you know, all kinds of kings, okay, the, the Kisra, the Qaisar, the Najashi, I have been to all of them, but never have I seen a king among a people like Muhammad ﷺ among his companions. That if he performs his ablution, they would not let the water thereof fall on the ground. If he spits out, they would have the mucus to rub their faces with. If he speaks, they would lower their voices. They will not abandon him for anything in any case. No matter what you give them, they will not abandon ﷺ. And this is why Urwa said to the Quraysh that, he is offering you a reasonable plan, meaning come to terms with him, do what you please, meaning agree with him and have a treaty with him. So anyway, in this hadith, what's the main lesson? Why is Imam Bukhari quoting this hadith over here? To prove that the spit, the saliva of a human being is tahir. And from this we learn that whatever that comes out of the eye, of the nose, of the ear, of the skin, all of it is tahir. It is clean. You might not like to see it. You might not want to touch it, but that's you. Alright? But if it falls on the clothes, if it's on the body, then remember it is not najis. The only excretions of the body that are najis are which ones? That come out from the sabilane, meaning from the private parts. And with regards to blood, there's ikhtilaf, meaning depending on the kind of blood, the ruling is different. So for example, if a person has a wound and there's pus coming out of that, is that najis? Let's say the wound is on the hand. It's not najis. It is still tahir. So if it's on the clothes, you know, sometimes it happens that a person may have a wound or something like that and there's pus coming out of it 
and it's constantly oozing out. You cannot have a dressing on top of it because if you cover it, it hurts. So if it comes out, it will obviously get onto the clothes. So can you pray in that state? Yes, you can. All right? There's no harm. You cannot keep changing the dressing that's on top of the wounds all the time. Right? So it's still on the wounds. What comes out of the private parts is the najasa that comes out of the private parts. All right? That is something that is unclean. And we see that over here, uh, the Prophet ﷺ spit, I mean the Sahaba would leap out to catch it. If you think about it, this whole discussion that we just had right now about the context in which this happened, even if you disregard that, it was the Prophet ﷺ, right? It was his saliva. And his mouth was always clean. We will learn about how frequently he used to clean his mouth and not just frequently, how thoroughly he would clean his mouth. So if someone's mouth is so clean, then their phlegm, it will also be clean. I mean, their saliva will also be clean. And also remember that the more beloved a person is to you, the more you like everything about them. If it's your own child and the child spits out, spits up on you, you don't mind that much. But if somebody else's child spits up on you, you'll never forget it. Right? Why? Because there is a difference. The way a mother loves a child, other people don't. So the more you love someone, the more you accept them, the more you like everything about them. حدثنا محمد بن يوسف قال حدثنا سفيان عن حميد عن أنس قال he said أنس ضلوا عنه narrated that بزق النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في ثوبه that بزق that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he spat out meaning his phlegm where in his clothes when when was this in the salah while the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was praying طوله, meaning this hadith has been mentioned in a longer form. By who? Ibn Abi Maryam. قال أخبرنا يحيى بن أيوب حدثني حميد قال سمعت أنسا عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم. So we see that this happened during the salah. Now, when a person is praying salah and he has the urge, the need to blow the nose or to spit out some mucus, then can he delay that? Can he? No. If you're thirsty in salah, can you wait until you finish your salah? Yes, you can. Right? But if you have to blow your nose, you have a cold, or you coughed and there's phlegm in your mouth, I mean, this is something that needs to be taken care of urgently. And at the same time, it's not something for which you should break your salah. Alright? It's not something for which you should break your salah. Now, what's the option? Sometimes it happens that in the salah you start crying and then you have to blow your nose too. So then what's the option? One is that a person ignores it, that his face is so dirty, you know, snot dripping down his nose and swallows the phlegm. I mean, that's not good. This is something that's not good. Besides, you will not be able to focus in prayer. One thing that you could do is rush through your prayer, quickly finish the salah, and then go to the washroom, whatever, wash your face, clean your nose. But can you pray with khushur? Not at all. And you will also be disturbing people who may be praying right next to you, who may be around you. So then what should a person do? Clean up. Now, how about spitting out? No, that's not right. Because in the masjid, this is something that's not correct. Once the Prophet ﷺ scraped off mucus from the wall of the masjid with his hand, and he told people not to do that. So, especially these days, you know, carpets, clean carpets, this is something that should not be done. So then what's the other option? That 
if you have tissue or something with you, I confirmed this with a scholar that can you actually take a tissue out of your pocket and clean your nose and then put it back? And they said, yes, right? You can. But the condition is that it has to be with minimal movement, all right? And in a way that is unnoticeable. Meaning don't go through your pocket looking for the tissue and and then you're checking one thing after the other. And finally, when you grab a tissue, then you open it up and you fold it and then you clean your nose and then you fold it up and then you put it in the pocket. No. In with the least movement and in the most unnoticeable way. Quick. First of all, don't look at the baby. Okay, in the salah. Secondly, if it gets onto their clothes, again, it's not nudges. If it gets onto your clothes, not nudges. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's not going to be that much, inshallah. Because if you start cleaning the children's noses and their mouths during prayer, that will be too much. I mean, it's yourself. okay? Because if you don't clean yourself, you will not be able to pray with khushur. All right? And you will not let other people pray with khushur either. Okay, like if it's on the floor, when you go to sujood, it's right there, then can you? Yes, you can. Because it's just like taking a part of your garment and, and blowing. As long as you don't have to reach out to something, move too much, it's okay. And can you hold it in your hand? Throughout your salah? No, you shouldn't. Okay? Because in the salah, your hands should be straight. For example, when you're standing in qiyam, your hands have to be in a particular, you have to hold them in a particular way. In rukur, in sujood, like hands have to be straight. Alright? So you cannot hold the tissue in your hand. You could perhaps put it in your sleeve, in your pocket, whatever is possible for you. So we see the Prophet ﷺ, he cleaned his mouth and he spat out into his clothes. So if a person doesn't even have a tissue with him and he has the need to clean his nose or his mouth then he can even do so in his clothes and you can go wash your sleeve off afterwards if needed bab la yajuzu alwudu'u bin nabidi wala almuskiri la yajuzu it is not allowed it is not permissible to do what alwudu bin nabid with nabiz wala almuskir nor any muskir what is nabiz nabid is you can say it's date infused water so water in which dates have been soaked for some time, so that the water becomes kind of sweet. It has a nice uh, taste. And we see that the Prophet ﷺ would have this in the morning. You can even do this with figs, with dried fruit even. Okay, You soak it in water, leave it overnight, and have it in the morning. It's actually very good. Even dried fruits, like even almonds and different, different things you can put. So this is what Nabid is. But remember that it's not an intoxicant. If you leave it for a long time, then it will become an intoxicant. Alright, so you have to consume it within a day or two. If you leave it for a prolonged period of time, it would actually turn into an intoxicant. What is muskir? Muskir is intoxicant. Sakara, sukran, right? To intoxicate. Now, when it comes to nabiz, is it tahir? Yes, it's clean. Because it's just date-infused water. Right? It's just water. It's You can drink it. It's completely tahir. But when it comes to muskir, there is a difference of opinion whether muskir is tahir or najis. The scholars differed over it. Remember, muskir, it's basically ma aqla, that which covers the intellect, ala wajhi ladha. Meaning that it's consumed for the purpose of ladha, for the purpose of pleasure. And when a person takes it, the result, the effect of it is that the person's aql is covered up, meaning he is intoxicated. So this means that muskit is not just alcohol. Okay, it's not just alcohol. It includes anything that can intoxicate a person. Likewise, this also means that every alcohol is not muskit. 
every alcohol is not muskir because some kinds of alcohol, for example, that which is, let's say, rubbing alcohol, okay, it will kill you before you'll get drunk. Uh, likewise, that which is in creams or, you know, different dif- types of products, perfumes, again, it's not an intoxicant because before you will get intoxicated, you will die. So it's poison, but it's not an intoxicant. So scholars have differed over it over muskit, that is it tahir or najis. Imam Bukhari was of the opinion that it was najis. This is why he said that it is not permissible to do wudu with muskit. But even if it is considered tahir, would it be permissible, would it be okay to do wudu with a muskit? No. Why? Because it's not water. Just like nabid is tahir, it is clean, but it is not allowed to do wudu with nabid. Why? Because you don't call it water. It was water before. But then when you soak dates in it, it changed. You don't call it water anymore. You call it nabid. This is just like you have water in a bottle, but then when you pour it on some kind of, let's say, you know, powdered juice, something, right? When you pour it on top of it, you won't call that water. You will call it juice then. Tea, exactly. You have water, but when you pour it over tea, then you will not call it water. You will call it tea. And wudu is supposed to be done with what? With water. What's the evidence of that? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَمْ تَجِدُوا مَاءً فَتَيَمَّمُوا That when you don't find water to do wudu, then what should you do? Tayammum. So in the absence of water, what's the solution? Do tayammum. Not that you substitute water with other liquids, such as the juice from your refrigerator, or the milk, or it has to be water. وَكَرِهَهُ الْحَسَنُ وَأَبُ الْعَالِيَةِ الْحَسَنُ Meaning Al-Hasan al-Basri and Abu al-Aliyah, both of them, they disliked it. Disliked what? Doing wudu with Nabid. Meaning they allowed it, but they did not like it. Okay. Meaning that they said that if a person is in a situation where he doesn't have water at all and he has Nabid, lots of Nabid, then okay, he can do wudu with that. But they didn't like this idea. وَقَالَ عَطَاءٌ And Ata said, التَّيَمُّمُ that tayammum is ahabbu ilayya, it is more beloved to me, min al wudu'i, than wudu' bin nabidi wal labani. Than doing wudu' with nabid and milk. Meaning I'd rather do tayammum, than do wudu' with juice and milk. I'm sure you would be of the same opinion. Yes. No, nabid in particular is date infused water. But from that we learn that other liquids which are not called water, they may have been water once upon a time, but after their state has changed, then you will not use them for wudu. But if, let's say, for the purpose of, you know, to make the water smell nicer or to have a better effect, like these days, you put chlorine, water is treated so that it's clean. Likewise, if somebody puts mint in the water just so that it has a nicer smell or whatever, they even bathe in it. So it's considered water. It's okay. That this topic itself is interesting. Perhaps at that time, they didn't have access to water all the time. And imagine if somebody had some water, but they also had nabid. Now the water is finished, but they still have nabid and they have to do wudu. Obviously you're going to wonder, can I do wudu with nabid or should I do tayammum? The question is that can you use these food products or liquids for other purposes such as uh, beautification purposes yes you can why because huwa alladhi khalaqa lakum ma fil ardi jami'an allah has created all of these things for us for our benefit so we can as long as we're using them and benefiting from them it's okay we should just not waste them
But for wudu, water has to be used. Why? Because Allah says, فَلَمْ تَجِدُوا مَاءً فَتَيَمَّمُوا And these other drinks, they are food. حدثنا علي بن عبد الله قال حدثنا سفيان قال حدثنا الزهري عن أبي سلمة عن عائشة عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال كل شراب أسكر فهو حرام That every drink the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said that every drink that intoxicates then it is unlawful Meaning every intoxicating drink is unlawful for what? For drinking, right? The meaning you cannot drink it, you cannot consume it. Now, Imam Bukhari, why did he mention this hadith? That if you cannot drink it, you cannot use it for wudu either. Because in wudu, you're going to rinse your mouth. So if you're doing wudu with alcohol and you put alcohol in your mouth, that's not right. And also, some scholars have said that because intoxicants are haram for drinking, that means that they are najis. Okay, this is what some scholars said. And they said that only those drinks which are halal for us to drink, they are tahir. And the drinks which are haram, they are najis. But other scholars, they disagreed. They disagreed with this opinion. Why? Because everything that is haram for us to drink is not najis. For example, poison. Okay? Poison, for example. It's haram for a person to consume it, but it doesn't make it najis. It doesn't make it ghair tahir. Sheikh bin Uthaymin, he said, when he was asked about the impurity of alcohol, he said that the basic principle is that things are pure unless there is evidence to indicate that they are impure. When there is no evidence to indicate that something is impure, then the basic principle is that it is pure. However, the fact that a thing is forbidden does not necessarily mean that it is impure. Do you not see that poison is haram, but it is not najis? Everything that is najis is haram, but not everything that is haram is najis. So he said, based on that, we say concerning perfume, cologne and similar things that they are not najis. Because alcohol in and of itself is not najis. There is evidence for the opinion that we have mentioned, so cologne and, and similar things are not najis either. And continue. So basically, there is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars, but the more correct one seems that just because it is haram for drinking does not make it unclean. Okay, does not make it unclean. And like I mentioned to you earlier, that every alcohol is not an intoxicant anyways. Right? If you try to drink perfume, may Allah save you. If anyone tries to, May Allah save that person, but it's not something that is unclean. Bab ghasl al-mar'ati abaha, ghasl al-mar'ati, the washing by a woman, meaning a woman washing, abaha, her father, washing off what? Adam, the blood, anwajihi, from his face, meaning a woman washing blood from her father's face. If there is blood on the face of the father, can the daughter wash it off? Yes, she can, of course. Why is Imam Bukhari mentioning this? Someone is assisting another to clean them, right? So likewise, someone can assist another to do wudu. If a person cannot wash their limb, their face, for example, themselves, then can someone else help them? Yes. So for example, if a person has an injury because of which they cannot bend down or they cannot lift up their foot and they cannot wash their foot themselves, 
and otherwise they are completely fine. It's just their feet. They cannot reach their feet. So that doesn't mean they do ta'imum all the time. No, they should do wudu. But can someone else help them wash their feet? Yes, they can. Right? Yes, they can. Likewise, najasa. A person should remove it himself from his body. But if he's not able to, can someone else help him? Yes. And the evidence for this is this hadith. وَقَالَ أَبُوا الْعَالِيَةَ And Abu Aliya he said, اِمْسَحُوا عَلَى رِجْلِي Wipe my leg فَإِنَّهَا مَرِيضًا It is injured. Meaning it is injured, it is bleeding, so wipe it. Meaning, clean it, wash it. So this means that a person can help another to remove the najasa as well as to perform wudu. حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدٌ قَالَ أَخْبَرَنَا سُفْيَانُ بْنُ عُيَيْنَةِ عَنْ أَبِي حَازِمٍ سَمِعَ سَهْلَ بْنَ سَعْدٍ السَّاعِدِيَّةِ وَسَأَلَهُ النَّاسِ That Sahil ibn Sa'd Abu Hazim, he heard from Sahil bin Sa'ad, وَسَأَلَهُ nas and the people had also asked him. Asked who? Sahil bin Sa'ad. وَمَا بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَهُ أَحَدٌ And there was no one between me and him, meaning we were the only two people present. I was the only one who witnessed this. What? What Sahil said. That when the people asked him, بِأَيِّ شَيْءٍ With which thing do we, it was treated, جُرْحُ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ the wounds of the Prophet ﷺ. When the people asked him that how were the wounds of the Prophet ﷺ treated? When he was injured in battle, how was he treated? So فَقَالَ Sahil He replied that مَا بَقِيَ أَحَدٌ أَعْلَمُ بِهِ مِنِّي No one has remained, meaning no one is alive, who is more knowing of this matter than me. Meaning, I'm the only person who can tell you about this. Why? Because he was the only person left who had actually seen the Prophet ﷺ being treated. And he said, Kana, he used to, who? Aliyun, Ali radiallahu anhu. He would yaji'u, he would come, he would bring bitursihi with his shield, fihi ma'un. In it would be water. Ali radiallahu anhu would bring his shield, and in that would be water. وَفَاطِمَةُ and Fatima رَضِي اللَّهُ عَنْهَا تَغْسِلُ She would wash عَنْ وَجْهِهِ from his face الدَّمْ the blood. فَأُخِذَ Then it was taken حَصِيرٌ حَصِير A straw mat that is made from palm fiber. So فَأُخِذَ حَصِيرٌ فَأُحْرِقَ And then it was burnt فَحُشِيَ بِهِ جُرْحُهُ And then his jurh meaning his wound was filled up with it. Why? This was done in order to stop the bleeding and also to serve as a dressing on the wound. Now, this was in the context of the Battle of Uhud. In particular, this happened at the time of the Battle of Uhud when the Prophet ﷺ was injured, wounded. Ali anhu brought the water, Fatima anhu washed the wounds, and then the wounds were dressed as well. Dressing was put on top, the bleeding was also stopped. So this hadith, it proves to us that someone else can help another in cleaning their body. And we also learn about the Musnoon way of treating wounds. And what is that? That first of all, wash off the blood, meaning clean the wound. Is this something that is recommended today as well? Yes. Clean the wound first. Secondly, stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Like, what did they do? They burnt the the straw mat and they used the ashes to stop the bleeding. And also in order to apply the dressing. So it served as dressing as well. And the third would be apply something to heal the wound or to dress the wound with. So these days could be something as a home remedy as long as it's effective or you can even use some kind of 
ointment or whatever necessary. But remember that you should treat your wounds because the Prophet ﷺ did that. So we should also do that. Because sometimes we ignore these things and we say, oh, what's the big deal? Be brave. Well, if your skin is bleeding and there's a chance of, you know, the wound getting infected, take care of the body. The Prophet ﷺ did and you should do. She's mentioning her own personal experience that once she had a cut as well and her friend, she took some cotton and she burnt it and she applied it immediately and the bleeding stopped instantly. So this is an effective way as well. But other things that you can do are also pressing the wound. It depends on the size of the wound also, the kind of the wound. So you have to keep all of these things in consideration. Bab as-siwaki. On siwak. What is siwak? Miswak. Siwak is the tool with which one cleans his or her mouth and it is also, the word siwak is also used for the act of cleaning the mouth. So siwak is the the toothbrush, okay, the, the miswak. And the word is also used for the fear, the action, meaning tasawwuk, to clean the mouth. Just like the word kalam. Kalam is words as well as to speak. وَقَالَ ابْنُ عَبَّاسٍ and Ibn Abbas رضي الله عنه he said بِدْتُ عِنْدَ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَاسْتَنَّ I spent the night بِدْتُ I spent the night with the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم meaning at his house فَاسْتَنَّ and he cleaned his teeth when? when he woke up and this hadith has been mentioned several times that how Ibn Abbas he stayed over in order to see how the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم spent his night what were his habits so of the things that he observed was that the Prophet ﷺ cleaned his teeth even in the middle of the night when he woke up to pray. Istanna is sin, teeth, tooth, right? So istanna is to clean the teeth. حدثنا أبو النعماني قال حدثنا حماد بن زيد عن غيلان بن جرير عن أبي بردة عن أبيه قال أتيت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فوجدته يستنو Abu Burda, he said from his father Burda that I came to the Prophet ﷺ and I found him yastannu, that he was cleaning his teeth bisiwakin with a siwak biyadhi in his hand. He was cleaning his teeth with a siwak in his own hand. Yaqulu, and he was saying, ur, 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 ur. What does that mean? That the sound that was coming out from his throat. What? Gag reflex, right? That he was cleaning his tongue, his throat even, right? His teeth so thoroughly that it was as though he would throw up. Was siwaku fifihi and the siwak was in his mouth. When he was saying ur ur, the siwak was in his mouth, ka'annahu yatahawwaru, as if he would throw up. That the sound was as if he was going to throw up. So this means that the Prophet ﷺ did not just clean his teeth, but the entire mouth, not just the tongue, but also the back of the tongue. حدثنا عثمان قال حدثنا جرير عن منصور عن أبي وائل عن حذيفة قال كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم that the messenger صلى الله عليه وسلم what was his habit that إذا قام من الليل when he would stand up in the night يشوصو فاه بالسواك يشوصو شين وصي يشوصو is to clean the mouth and it is said it is to clean the mouth right to left, meaning sideways. Okay, and also to to rinse it with water, meaning you you're taking water all around the mouth. So he would take the siwak around the mouth 
all around the mouth from top to bottom, right, left, front, back, everywhere. Just like when you're rinsing your mouth, you take the water everywhere. Right? You swish it around your mouth. So likewise, he did that with the suwak, meaning thoroughly he cleaned his mouth. Okay, so he thoroughly cleaned his mouth with siwak. So in these hadith, what do we see? That siwak is sunnah. It was a habit of the Prophet ﷺ to clean his mouth and he would clean his mouth all the time. And the Prophet ﷺ said that siwak is madhara lilfam wa mardatul lirab. That it is a means of cleaning the mouth and a means of attaining the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are two benefits to using miswak. Your mouth becomes clean and secondly, you also earn the reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. His pleasure, His happiness. You make Allah happy, basically, when you do miswak. Now, is a toothbrush okay? Can you just brush your teeth and that is sufficient? Is it the same as using siwak? It may fulfill the same purpose in the sense that you may have your mouth clean. However, the tool that the Prophet ﷺ used, we should also use that same tool. Especially when it is far more effective. That it's much more effective and you feel the effects of it even. Recently I started using miswak regularly and I noticed that the difference between using a miswak and a toothbrush was that when you brush your teeth with a toothpaste, what happens? With that strong mint taste, you feel as if your mouth is clean instantly. But when you're doing the miswak, then you cannot stop until you actually have that clean feeling. So you actually end up cleaning your mouth more thoroughly and for a longer period of time. Toothbrush you cannot take everywhere. Right? Recently a friend of mine, she when she came back from the dentist, she was told that her, her gums were not doing that well. Why? Because she was using a very hard toothbrush, okay, with very hard bristles, thinking that clean her mouth much better. But she was actually harming her gums in that process. Because it's much harder and as miswak is much softer. That miswak, because of its shape, how it is, you can take it to the back of your tongue, you can take it every corner of your mouth. It even actually helps with flossing. So, there are two benefits to this. Madhara lilfam and mardat lirrab. And both of these benefits are worth it. That the Prophet ﷺ wished to make it obligatory with every wudu. Now Imam Bukhari, perhaps this is the reason why he mentioned the siwak over here, that we have learned a lot about wudu and this is almost the end of the entire kitab. So it is better that a person does miswak with every wudu. And we see that the Prophet ﷺ used to do miswak all the time. So many ahadiths show us about how he was doing miswak at so many different times, in the middle of the night, in the morning. I mean, any time. So wherever the need is. But we see that there are some times in which it is preferred to do miswak and of them is especially when a person wakes up from sleep. Especially when a person wakes up from sleep and this is what is mentioned in the ahadith over here as well. That even in the middle of the night, like Ibn Abbas who said, and even in daytime, who he said that when the Prophet woke up in the night, he would clean his mouth. Right? And other companions also narrated that he cleaned his mouth. And the word that is used in the hadith of Hudayfa anhu is that yashusufahu bisiwak. Meaning he would take the siwak everywhere in the mouth. So it includes cleaning the tongue, the teeth, the palate, the back of the tongue, all over. 
And we see that the Prophet ﷺ would, you know, clean his mouth so well, especially the tongue that he would almost throw up. Right? And we see that especially in the morning, if you do that after waking up from sleep, then the throat also becomes clean, which is very important for removing bad breath. It's something that's very helpful. That plastic, uh, you know, it accumulates germs in the sense that they stick to it no matter how much you clean. But wood, on the other hand, is different, right? It's a natural material and it's self-cleaning in a way. So miswak is definitely very helpful. And again, thoroughly cleaning them out to the point that you're almost throwing up, try it. Try it. Seriously. The Prophet ﷺ did it, but we see that don't do it in front of other people. Because you might not throw up, but they might throw up. <laughs> okay. So do it in privacy, but do it. Is there a masnoon way of cleaning the mouth? Yes, yeshusu. Meaning, take it everywhere. Yes, sideways. Okay. And also all over the mouth. Every part of it. Okay. Think of it as this, that if you're ever using mouthwash, where do you try to take the mouthwash? Every part of the mouth, right? So likewise, miswak, you have to take it every part of the mouth. Bab dafri siwaki ilal akbari. Dafri, meaning giving, as-siwak, the siwak ilal akbar to the oldest person, to the older person. Why is this mentioned? What has this got to do with wudu? If you have miswak, the etiquette is that you give it to who? The person who is older in age. Okay, if there are two people in front of you and you have to give the miswak to one person, who should you give to? The one who is older in age. You let them clean themselves first. So how is this relevant to wudu? That if, for example, there are people who have to do wudu and one is older and the other is younger, you have the water with you and you have to help both people do wudu where you have to take them or whatever, then who should you give the chance first? The older person. Younger will learn from the older too. وقال عفان حدثنا صخر بن جويرية عن نافع عن ابن عمر أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said أراني I saw myself meaning in, in my dream I saw أتسوك بسواك I was cleaning my mouth with a siwak فجاءني رجلاني Then two men came to me أحدهما أكبر من الآخر One of them was older than the other Now sometimes you don't know the ages of the people but you can tell that one is older than the other. فَنَاوَلْتُ السِّوَاكَ Then I gave the siwak الْأَصْغَرَ مِنْهُمَا To the younger of those two. Meaning the one who was younger, I gave the siwak to that person. فَقِيلَ لِي So it was said to me, كَبِّرْ Meaning begin with the older one. Give it to the older one. فَدَفَعْتُهُ إِلَى الْأَكْبَرِ مِنْهُمَا So I gave it to the older one of them too. قال أبو عبد الله اختصره نعيم عن ابن المبارك عن أسامة عن نافع عن ابن عمر. Now we see that the Prophet ﷺ saw this in his dream. Okay, and the dreams of the prophets are revelation. So we see that this is a divinely ordained matter. That when you have to offer something, when you have to give something to people who vary in their age, then you should start with who the one who is older in age. When you have to give a turn to someone, when you have to offer a spot to someone or whatever, then you should offer it to who? The one who is 
older in age. Now if the one who is older does not want it, that's a different thing. But if they want it, if they need it, then you should definitely offer them first. You should give them first. Now, haven't we learned that we should start with the one on our right side? This was the habit of the Prophet ﷺ, that he would start with the one on his right side. So isn't this contradictory? What if the older person is sitting across from you and the younger one is sitting right next to you? Then what? Once a young companion was sitting by the right side of the Prophet ﷺ and something was brought to him and the Prophet ﷺ asked him that may I give to the older one first? And he said, no. The younger companion said, no. I don't remember which companion it was, but he said no. Because this is something that, you know, something coming from the Prophet ﷺ, he wouldn't give that up. For anyone. So what do we see? That this is not a contradiction, but you have to look at the situation. Sometimes it happens that in a place, there are people scattered everywhere. And, um, you know, people who are younger and older. So if you have to come and start offering something, then you will go to the older person first. You will give to them first and then continue on from the right side. But if the majlis has begun, it has started, everybody is sitting in their place, then you start from the right side. And if there is an elderly person there, then what do you do? You take the permission of the one on the right side and then you offer to the older person. So for example, this class is going on right now. If somebody was to walk in, with a tray full of dates and distribute them in class, what should they do? Go where? They have to come to the class. Their right side depends on where they are. I mean, this is not your right side. Okay, it depends on your orientation, right? Right side is different. So they have to approach the oldest person first. Okay? The one who appears to be most older. Okay? or the one who deserves most respect, approach them first, offer them, and then continue from the right side. All right? So this is the proper etiquette. This is not a contradiction. So the siwaki ilal akbar. And this hadith also proves that using someone else's miswak is also permissible. Because the saliva of a Muslim is tahir. It is clean. Again, you might not be comfortable, but it is okay. So for example, if your child just takes your toothbrush or your your siwak or something like that and they have it in their mouth, do you have to ditch it or can you use it? You can use it. There's no harm. Okay? Sometimes it happens that you know, you're drinking from a bottle and somebody else also drinks from that same bottle or from the same straw or eats with from the same spoon. Some people are okay with it and other people cannot handle this. Right? That it may happen that a person may accidentally use someone else's toothbrush. That she's saying that her hips teacher, that from the class every now and then somebody had to go drink water. So the teacher, she just kept a bottle of water in class and she said, whoever has to drink, drinks from here and doesn't go out of class. So she said that it helped them get over their germophobe side. It's not nudges, but you have to see what is culturally acceptable as well. That if a non-mahram has, you know, if they have eaten from something or drank from something, then can you drink from the same cup? Can you eat from the same plate? Again, it's not najis, not at all. Nor is it something that from which you have to do hijab, okay? 
it is okay, but you have to see what is culturally acceptable. If you did something like that, I'm sure people would not think positive thoughts about you and them. And we see that at the time of the death of the Prophet ﷺ, some time before that also, when he saw Miswak, he was looking at it, he wanted it. So he was, Aisha Dilawanha, she softened the Miswak with her own mouth and she gave it to him to use. I mean, isn't that amazing? Just think about it. You know, we if we are ever sick, we're lying in bed or we are at home or something, we don't have to go to work. Sometimes people defer taking a shower, defer cleaning themselves, defer even brushing their teeth, cleaning their mouth. But we see that the Prophet ﷺ was in that pain, but he still wanted his mouth to be clean. So it is more befitting that when we are going to pray salah, our mouth is clean. And think about it, it's meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Salah. So when you're meeting Allah, then mouth should be clean to the best of your ability. And also fajr especially. For fajr especially, make it a habit of cleaning your mouth before performing fajr salah. I remember somebody had mentioned that when they clean their mouth thoroughly, when they do siwak in the morning and they spend you know time doing it properly, then their mouth is clean, their Nose is clean, you know, sniffling water all the way up to the nose. Nose is clean, mouth is clean. They feel fresh and they also end up using the washroom. So they're completely clean, right? And they pray with sukoon. Otherwise, what happens typically with people? They're praying and they have to rush to the washroom immediately. Or they're praying and they cannot focus. So give time to cleaning yourself, washing yourself up properly before salah. And it starts with miswak. That miswak, the Prophet ﷺ said that there are two benefits to it. One, it cleans the mouth. And secondly, it's a means of earning Allah's mardat, pleasure. So you could brush your teeth too with an ordinary toothbrush, but you could also do miswak and earn the pleasure of Allah. and Make Allah happy. Now the last hadith of this bab, it is Bab fadli man bata ala al-wudu the excellence, the virtue of the one who spends the night in wudu. Wudu is performed for what purpose? For the purpose of salah, ibadah. But if a person sleeps in that state, then that is also very good. Just like we learned earlier that when we're meeting Allah, before salah, do siwak. So likewise, before sleeping, do wudu. حدثنا محمد بن مقاتل قال أخبرنا عبد الله قال أخبرنا سفيان عن منصور عن سعد بن عبيدة عن البراء بن عازب قال he said قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said to who البراء بن عازب إذا أتيت when you come مضجعك your sleeping place meaning in the night when you go to bed فتوضأ then do wudu how وضوءك للصلاة just like your wudu for salah. Meaning just the way you do wudu for salah, do wudu before going to sleep. So sometimes it happens that when you're going to perform salah, you're doing wudu, you do wudu in the most excellent manner, meaning washing every body part three times, right? taking care of everything. So perform wudu in the same way, in the best way. ثُمَّ then اِطَّجِعْ عَلَى شِقِّكَ الْأَيْمَنِ Then lie down on your right side. ثُمَّ then قُلْ say. Allahumma aslam tu wajhi ilayk. O Allah, I submit my face to you. Wafawwattu amri ilayk. And I hand over, I entrust my affair to you. 
وَأَلْجَأْتُ ظَهْرِي إِلَيْكَ And I have entrusted, meaning I hand over my ظَهْر, my side to you, إِلَيْكَ to you. رَغْبَةً meaning in hope, وَرَغْبَةً and fear, إِلَيْكَ to you. لَا مَلْجَأَ There is no protection, وَلَا manja nor any place of refuge, مِنْكَ from you, إِلَّا except إِلَيْكَ to you. Meaning there is no refuge from you except with you. Allahumma, O oh Allah, amantu, I believe, bikitabik, with your book, alladhi, that which anzalta you have revealed. Wabinabiyik, and with your prophet, alladhi, the one who arsalta you have sent. Fa in mutta, the Prophet wasallam said, then if you die, min, from laylatik, your night, fa anta, then you are ala al-fitrah, on the fitrah. وَجَعَلْهُنَّ And make them آخِرَ The last of مَا تَتَكَلَّمُ بِهِ That which you speak. Meaning make these words the last words that you utter. Do not say anything else after saying these words. قَالَ He said, meaning Al-Bara bin Azib رضي الله عنه He said, فَرَدَّدْتُهَا I repeated, I returned those words, meaning I repeated them عَلَى النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ On the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. فَلَمَّا بَلَغْتُ Then when I reached, اللَّهُمَّ آمَنْتُ بِكِتَابِكَ الَّذِي أَنزَلْتُ That, O oh Allah, I believe in the book that you have revealed, قُلْتُ وَرَسُولِكَ I said, and in your prophet, in your messenger whom you have sent. Instead of saying, وَنَبِيِّكَ What did he say? وَرَسُولِكَ قَالَ لَا The Prophet ﷺ, he said, no. وَنَبِيِّكَ الَّذِي أَرْسَلْتُ Say, and your prophet whom you have sent. Now there are a number of lessons that we learn in this hadith. First of all, we learn about the etiquette of sleeping. What are the etiquettes of sleeping? That when a person goes to sleep, he should sleep in the state of tahara. In the state of tahara, in the state of wudu, just as a person does wudu for salah. Why? Because when a person sleeps, his soul is taken up by who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah يَتَوَفَّ الْأَنفُسَ حِينَ مَوْتِهَا وَالَّتِي لَمْ تَمُتْ فِي مَنَامِهَا Those who do not die, their souls are taken at the time of their sleep. So when your soul is leaving, you going to Allah. Allah takes it. Then be in the state of tahara. And this is the reason why it is preferred that a person should not sleep in the state of janaba also. That a person should sleep in the state of tahara. That he should, he or she should take a bath and then sleep. And if that is not possible, then at least wudu. Okay? Then at least wudu, meaning be in the state of cleanliness, some kind of cleanliness at least. Not that wudu is enough. It will not take you out of the state of janaba, but at least it's a start to getting, to becoming clean. So this is why the scholars recommended that a person should not sleep in the state of janaba even. He should try his best to sleep in the state of tahara. Because if you die in that state, then you want to meet Allah while you are. Not that there is any sin otherwise, but because one of the companions, he was martyred while he was in the state of Janaba. So there is no harm, but when the Prophet ﷺ told us to sleep in the state of wudu, then how can we go on sleeping in the state of Janaba? Secondly, we also learn that when a person sleeps, then he should sleep on his right side. Sleep on the right side, not on the tummy, not on the left side, not on your back even, on your right side. And this has many physical benefits. I don't need to go into all that discussion. It's good for your heart. It's good for your stomach. It's good for your back even. For example, in pregnancy, the doctor said that don't lie down on your back, especially in the later stages, because 
puts a lot of pressure on the back. All the weight of the baby goes on to the back. So what's best? Sleeping on the side. And when you have to sleep on the side, might as well sleep on the right side. That when you sleep on the right side, when you're lying down in that position, then all of the organs are actually in the best position possible. Right? They are most, you can say, comfortable or whatever. So it has medical benefits to it. Your entire body gets to rest. And you may have experienced that if you end up sleeping on your stomach or on your left side or something, then you f- you wake up feeling tired sometimes. Many people say this, that they wake up after hours and hours of sleep, but they're still tired. Sleep the masnoon way and you will feel the benefits. Even my son, I was telling him the other day, sleep on the right side. So it's a habit that has to be developed from a very young age. Mothers, many mothers I've seen, they will put their children on their on their tummy because the child feels more secure or cozy or what. But it's not a good habit that the child will develop. Make the child sleep on the right side. Yes, you should keep turning, but most of the time should be on the right side. If there is a, a medical reason because of which a person cannot sleep on the side, then at least they should start off in the state, like right, lie down on the right side, say the dua, and then turn. Or go in the, in the position that you have to go in because of medical reasons. So there are many benefits to this. We also learn about handing over all of your affairs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tafweedu tam. That saying the dua before going to sleep. And what dua is this? Have you heard of this before? Yeah? Some of you have, some of you haven't. If you start saying it regularly, you'll memorize it. But please make it a habit because look at the benefit. If a person says these words and he dies, then he will die upon the fitrah. What does fitrah mean? Khalis tawheed. Tawheed al-khalis. Meaning as a true monotheist he will die. And a person who dies as a true monotheist, then the hellfire is, if he does end up there, he will be taken out. Because a person who has Tawheed al-Khalis, Allah will not send him to the hellfire, right? Allah will not leave him in the hellfire. So it's a means of protection for a person. And if you look at the words of the dua, what are they? Allahumma aslamtu nafsi ilayk, wa aljatu zahri ilayk, wa wajjahtu wajhi ilayk. There are different versions as well, right? What's the version over here? Allahumma aslamtu wajhi ilayk. So I surrender my face. So we see that the wajh is mentioned, the zahr is mentioned, and amr is mentioned. Three things. Face, my matters, my affairs, and my body. Right? So everything I hand over to you. How? In hope and in fear. In hope of what? Of your fadl, of your grace, of your mercy, of your thawab. And in fear of what? Of your iqab, punishment. So hand over everything to Allah before going to bed. And you will sleep well. You will sleep well. Because in the night, typically when we're lying in bed, what are we thinking about? The things that we have to do and so many things, right? So entrust your affair to Allah. That, oh Allah, relying upon you, I go to sleep. You help me complete these tasks. That one of the things that helps a person to wake up for fajr is when you go to sleep at night with wudu, with the intention of waking up. When you will sleep in that state, then Allah will also give you tawfiq to wake up. So saying this dua also, I hand over my affair to you. Oh Allah, you wake me up. I cannot do this myself. Raghbatan wa rahbatan. Right? And there's no protection, no refuge against you, but with you. Meaning, only Allah can give. And what Allah gives, then no one can forbid that. No one can stop that. And then we learned that these should be the last words that a person should say before going to sleep. What does this mean? All the talking you have to do, 
before. Even all of the adhkar that you have to do should be before this dua. So for example, Bismillahumma mutu ahya, say it before this dua. Likewise, your ayatul kursi, mu'awwidatayn, likewise, um, tahmeed, tasbih, takbir, all of that, do it before. Make this the last thing that you say. And if you die in that state, then you die on fitrah. That give time to making your adhkar. Then we see that at the end of the hadith where Bara bin Azib, he repeated the words to the Prophet ﷺ. What do we learn from this? The fact that he repeated the dua before the Prophet ﷺ, that the etiquette of learning or the proper methodology of learning, of receiving is what? Not just listen, 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 but also repeat, say. Why? Because when you do not say, when you do not attend groups, when you don't say the lesson, when you don't read the hadith yourself, then you will not know if you have understood correctly or not. So groups are important because you have to read the hadith yourself too. It's not sufficient to just come and attend class and go because you've listened. You can forget very easily. You have to go through it. You have to say it yourself. You have to let someone pick a mistake, right? Correct you, do your tawjih, whether it is in the form of a test or in the form of group discussion or whatever. But it is essential. That's half of your learning. Half of your learning. When you're memorizing the Qur'an, you don't know if you really know it unless you read it out to someone and they and they test you. So we see that he understood Barra bin Azib, he understood, he memorized most of it, but there was just one mistake that he made, of one word. He changed just one word. And in meaning, it was okay. Rasul, Nabi, same thing. But the wording was different. So likewise, we can also sometimes have these small misunderstandings that can make a huge difference. But from this, the scholars, they have said that the etiquette that we learn about the du'as is that the wordings should not be changed. The wordings that the Prophet ﷺ taught us, they should not be altered. They should be kept exactly the way they are. Okay, whether it is his khutbah or you know, in the salah or any du'a. Even if the additions may seem to be very beautiful. Okay? Even though the additions may seem to be very beautiful, still, masnoon is the best. And you keep it as it is. You do not alter it. From this, some scholars have also said that there is a difference between Rasul and Nabi. But essentially what we see here is that the wordings should be kept exactly the same. So Imam Bukhari concludes Kitab al-Wudu with this hadith. Right? Isn't this amazing? What's the encouragement over here? Do wudu all the time. Stay in wudu all the time. Even when you're sleeping. So that your sleep also becomes ibadah. And if you die in that state, you die tahir. Clean. And may Allah wash us inside as well. When we try to keep our body clean, when we wash our outside, may He help us wash our inside too. Like for example, a person did wudu got ready for bed and then he goes to bed immediately. Not that he did wudu from Isha and then used the washroom before going to sleep. No, he's going to bed. You know, when you make the intention to go to bed, then you do wudu, you go to bed, you lie down, you're saying your adhkar, what if you break your wudu then? It's okay. A person should not impose hardship on himself by going and doing wudu again and again and again. We see here that yes, the soul is taken up by Allah. It is best that a person sleeps in the state of wudu. But if a person is sleeping, almost sleeping, and at that time the wudu breaks, then if you want to, go ahead, do wudu again. No problem. But 
if it's like you're imposing hardship on yourself, on others, let's say your husband is getting upset that why are you going to the bathroom again and again? He's not able to sleep because of your constant getting up. I mean, this is not correct then. If you have wudu, it's okay. Right? Like for example, you got ready for bed and then you prayed Isha, but your intention was to sleep right after. It's okay. If you have wudu, you don't need to do it again. But if you don't have it, then you need to do it again. That when you have done wudu right before going to sleep, you are in a way fresh and clean and you're able to do your adhkar. If you don't have your wudu, then you won't be able to. What if you said this dua, you made these your last words, but then your husband is talking to you, then what do you do? Then you respond to him and when he's when you're done with the conversation, then you say your dua again. And also teach it to children. We think, you know, if you teach them the simple short dua, that's sufficient. But teach them more. They're able to memorize more. And you can only teach them when you say it with them. Subhanakallah wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.